Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the TRU BLS podcast. As usual, I'm one of your hosts, Tanner, and I'm here today with my co-host, Jordan, and we are very lucky to have Laura Spitz with us today. Uh, Laura, I'm just going to pass it over to you, and why don't you tell me a bit about yourself and kind of your areas of practice? Sure. Um, So as you know, I'm a professor at Thompson Rivers University, and I'm actually also a professor at the University of New Mexico School of Law. Um, I'm a non-practicing member of the Law Society of British Columbia, so I just emphasize non-practicing member in case uh, anybody's listening and thinks I'm giving tax advice, I'm not. Um, I practiced in British Columbia, though, for many years, um, and I have my law degree from Allard. Uh, but I also have a PhD in law from Cornell University, and I've been teaching in the United States for many years, where I'm also a consulting expert in tax and contract and business law. Yeah, so I'm sort of all over. <laughs> so what, what, what bring, you're in Vancouver right now, right, Laura? Yeah. What brings you back to British Columbia? So BC is home for me, yeah. Um, and I'm also in some ways more familiar with the legal system just because this is where I grew up and where I went to law school and where I practiced for most of my adult life. Um, And yeah, my son is here and my family's here. So what's that like teaching? I'm just interested. Um, So you're teaching in New Mexico as well right now. So kind of, does that work? I guess it's online so you can teach wherever you want right now. Oh yeah. No, no, not simultaneously. I'm on leave right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm only teaching at Thompson Rivers at the moment. Um, but it tur- you're right, we're online. So it turns out I could have been teaching in New Mexico right now, but I didn't know that. I didn't know when none of us knew what this was going to look like last year. Yeah, who would have ever guessed eh? that, that we would be where we are. Yeah. So I got to say, I know absolutely nothing about tax law. My, the closest thing I know about taxes is I fill out my TurboTax every year and the government gives me a number and I say, great. That's that's good for me. Very so, interesting, Tanner. <laughs> I, I know, I know it's 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 bad, but <laughs> what exactly is tax law and and why do we have lawyers for tax law and what can lawyers do that's different than say accountants? Oh, that's a good question. Okay. So um so you I was going to say, you know what tax is, but maybe you don't. So tax, tax is in the a, most general sense. You know, I do. Okay. All right. So you, you, what you do know about tax is what what everybody knows is that it's compulsory. So it's a compulsory levy that the government charges you, um, and it does so under um, and with the enforcement of law. So you don't. Um, it has a lot. It has a large apparatus to enforce its taxing powers and. If you didn't fill in your TurboTax form and pay the number at the bottom, um, you would learn about that tax enforcement system more quickly than you probably have yet. Um, uh, um, So tax and accountants. So tax law is really, so tax and accountants, let's let's talk about what they both know, what they both the same, they both know the same. Just like tax lawyers, there are accountants who specialize in particular areas of tax law um, and they will be as familiar with the Income Tax Act, for example, as um, as, a, as a lawyer who practices um, tax law would be. Um, but accountants really um, are on the tax planning, tax reporting side of the framework framework. Um, and what lawyers do, although they are awful, often also a part of tax planning, what lawyers do is implement because, um, of course, accountants don't prepare the legal documents. So together, a tax accountant and a tax lawyer might plan, make a plan for you, Tanner, now that you're a rich, famous lawyer. <laughs> and But it's going to be the law, the lawyer that's going to prepare the trust documents um, in um, and maybe uh, incorporate for you and prepare the agreements between um, your children and you for the shares they own in your company and so on and so forth. So the lawyers are really, um, you know, it sounds simple to say doing the legal side, but of course accountants aren't allowed to practice law. So, so that's what the lawyers are doing. They're implementing your tax planning plan. Do uh Tax, so I mean, that got me thinking like it's important for a corporation to have a tax lawyer, um, maybe wealthy individuals, but I was wondering, 
is is seeking legal advice for for, for taxes for, for taxes and whatnot um better for okay for lower income individuals or is that more of a thing that larger just corporations do or, or high net worth individuals so so yes it's mostly what high net worth individuals and um corporations do because the dollar amounts at stake are more significant than for lower income individuals. But as a percentage of their income, the dollar amounts actually may be relatively similar. Um, But um, I guess I'd say three things or two things with lower income individuals, um, the tax planning, there's not much tax planning they can do because they don't have any excess cash that they would wanting that they have, um, the ability to plan for, right? So that if you don't have enough money for rent, you're also not contributing to a retirement savings uh, and making a decision about whether that's going to be in mutual funds or in, a, you know, in a high interest savings account, that kind of thing. Um, so that's one of the reasons um, is just a practical question. Um, and then the other one is, of course, the access to justice, justice question. Like it's very expensive to have lawyers to, and accountants, if you think about it, um, accountants are also by the hour, very expensive professionals in the same way that lawyers are for tax planning. So you'd have, it'd have to be worth it to you to spend, you know, if you were going to spend $50,000 or a hundred thousand dollars on your tax planning in 2021, you'd have to have enough money to make that worth it to you. That makes sense. Uh, and Jordan, obviously, wealthier individuals, they're going to need the tax lawyers. They're, they're usually not getting money back on their taxes like we are. They actually pay taxes. So there you go. <laughs> well, and also some of the tax, so just as examples, some of the tax planning um, that you would need to do, like you'd want to plan around, for example, might be um, having to do with your capital gains or capital losses. And depending on your income level, you won't have capital gains or capital losses um, to plan with. Right. To write off against other kinds of income. That won't be possible for you because you don't actually have them. So I guess as a third explanation, um, you're just not even in the tax world where planning is required because there's not a lot of planning you can do if you're in, you know, if you're in a, if you're in one of the lower tax bracket rates, um, that's just where you are. That's very standardized across the country. Okay. Yeah. Um, so just quickly, because you do bounce kind of between BC and New Mexico, what's the largest difference that you've seen between Canada and the US in, in terms of tax law? The largest difference. So so just to start, they're far more similar than they are different. Right? Okay. Yeah, the American tax system, the federal tax system, and how it really works with the states and then with local government looks a lot like the Canadian federal tax system with provinces and municipalities. So that they're far more alike than they're different. Um, you would, in order, you know, I keep coming back to the fact that you say that, Tanner, you don't know anything about tax. So just at a very basic <laughs> level, at a very basic level, um, in when you're thinking about a tax system, we have the same, pretty much the same economic and political systems. It looks different and it's exciting on the news, but they're both, uh, you know, they're both common law colonial systems and we have a capitalist economic system. And so our tax system looks very similar. Um, how you think about tax systems are um, the tax unit, the tax base and the tax rate especially for income tax. So the tax unit is the individual here in Canada. Um, and it's actually mostly the individual in the United States, although sometimes families are taxed as a unit in the United States and they're not taxed as a unit here. Um, the tax base is your taxable income. So um, it, there's a slight differences between the United States and Canada. In Canada, you only pay um, tax if you're a resident in Canada, like the, so you pay tax on your worldwide income. So that's your tax base is your worldwide income, but only if you're a resident in Canada. And in the United States, if you're a citizen of the United States, you pay tax on your worldwide income wherever you live. Um, but the differences in practice are very low because um, both countries have tax treaties that enable people to um, use the foreign they pay the tax they pay to foreign governments to reduce the tax debt they owe to the federal government. So 
if even if you're an American citizen and you're living in Canada and you have to pay tax on your worldwide income, well, you get to deduct the amount of tax you, you get a foreign tax credit for the amount you pay to the Canadian government. So it, in practice, is very little difference. They don't have a goods and services tax in the United States. The biggest difference is the rate, I guess. That's what you hear most about. People always talk about Canadians pay more taxes than Americans at the highest rate, not at the lowest tax rate, but at the highest tax rate. It's actually not an incredible difference. Um, the biggest difference, um, so let's say the rate is different, which it is, it's a higher tax rate here in Canada, um, but it really ties to government spending. So here in Canada, we pay more tax, but we don't pay, for example, for healthcare um, and other, we don't, most of us don't pay for uh, education before university. And when you, and even university, we don't pay much for education. So if you think in the United States that you have to pay for your healthcare and you have to pay for school. Um, and just for example, I was previous to UNM teaching at Cornell and the tuition at the Cornell Law School is about $60,000 a year, maybe more. Wow. Um, uh, and, um, and even when I was teaching at Colorado, the tuition was about $29,000 a year. And I still had students wandering around the school saying, well, it's a good thing it was less expensive than my high school. So it's, um, so, so ultimately you pay you, so your out of pocket dollars, I feel like end up being fairly comparable. It's just a question of whether you pay directly for your healthcare or you pay the Canadian government and they pay for your healthcare. Um, yeah. So having paid tax in both places, um, as like a middle-class person, I don't, I don't, the actual leftover dollars after I pay for healthcare and my son's education, um, wasn't, wasn't appreciably different. And it's a far more complex system in the United States because you have to personally pay for lots of different things that we think of as public service. There's something that's super interesting about tax law. Um, it's just like how much it impacts society and like how much uh, implications are. So something, something that's interesting to me is like you said, it was very interesting. Um, like your after tax, I mean, I mean, your the, the money that's in your pocket at the end of the day is there, is similar in the U.S. and Canada. Yet we get there in different ways. Like Canada wants to, uh, Canada will tax you more. Yet the U.S. will tax you less, but you're just gonna have to pay for it that way. So I was just wondering, in, in your opinion, between the two different areas, like. Why, why do you think the U.S. goes that route and we go this route? Um, like, what, what, what goes behind those policy decisions, do you think? So there's a really complex answer, as you could imagine, Jordan, that we could all, many, many people get PhDs in this question. But if, if I was going to just tell you in a re reductionist, oversimplified answer. Perfect for me. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> I would say as a general matter, in Canada, we have we have accepted that uh, sort of that we're in a common enterprise. We have like we're more community minded, is how I would describe us. That I mean, again, I'm oversimplifying because obviously there are lots of different kinds of people in Canada with lots of different political and social and economic values. But as a society, as a general matter, we have decided that. Um, we are a common enterprise and we have minimum standards and a sort of acceptance that um, that we should all be responsible for that, that we all should have health. If you if you ask that most Canadians believe we should all have health care, we should all have public education and, and so on. And the United States just ideologically is very committed to the idea of the individual and individualism. Now, it's not because I don't think people in the United States don't think oh, everybody shouldn't have these things. Um, they just believe the best way to, to have human flourishing is to foreground the individual. Um, so when you have individualism at leading the policy decisions, um, then that just shapes the policy discussion and it looks different than if you have community-focused ideals shaping the policy discussion. The idea that you sort of owe something to somebody else in Canada and the idea in the United States that you don't really owe anything to anybody but yourself. Um, again, really oversimplifying, but yeah, that's what I would say. So I can buy, I could buy healthcare because I make enough money, but you have millions and millions and millions of uninsured people in the United States. Um, 
So my experience is my after, yeah, my the money in my pocket is very similar in Canada and the United States after it's all said and done. But that's not true for people who don't make as much money as I do. They just don't have health care or they just don't have access to quality public education. I couldn't imagine if uh, I've had like three surgeries from sports and I couldn't imagine if I was paying for those, I'd be bankrupt. And then like, I can imagine it's like a Harvard law or whatever schools like two north of 200 K us couldn't imagine that either. I just don't think it'd be worth it to go to school. It structures your choices. So like um, if you graduate from law school with a quarter of a million dollar student loan um, and you have the opportunity to work at a big law firm in New York city and the opportunity to work as a defense counsel, you're going to pick the opportunity to work in a big law firm in New York city. Cause you're going to make um, like a starting salary of a Cornell grad is about $200,000 a year in the, in that market. Um, so with that, and Cornell's not special. I mean, Cornell's special. I love it, but it's not special in the sense that um, that would be true if you graduated from Columbia or NYU or Harvard or, or wherever. <laughs> um, and that here. So all students, though, start the same, like all my first year students at Cornell are the same as my first year students at Thompson Rivers. They're very diverse. Some want to be corporate lawyers, some want to be tax lawyers, some want to be defense counsel. But it, it funnels you in a particular direction because of your student debt. Whereas here, I think students have a different choice when they graduate, because the other thing is the student loan market in the United States is a much different market. It's a private market, mostly. Um, so you could have a student loan with like eight or 9% interest. And here, you know, wow. <laughs> first of all, it's not, there's no interest on the provincial side of it. Right. And then the or one, what, what, one, one aspect of it is there's no interest. I don't know if it's federal or provincial. And then the other part is a, is a pretty low interest rate. Yeah. The provincial is like you said, no interest. And then federally you get it is interest but it's it's incredibly low and we also get a bunch of grants to go along with it so it, it is quite affordable i i remember during my undergrad i didn't take out student loans uh because i was fortunate enough my parents were able to help me out and after we finished we were looking at the student loan setup and my parents were like well why weren't we taking out student loans the interest was so low you were getting free money out of it and we paid out of pocket i was like well i didn't know but yeah there you go <laughs> i know i tell my students in the united states because i graduated from law school with maybe thirty-two thousand dollars or something in debt in but that was a long time ago. Um, and then the way the grant process worked, because I did my undergrad and then my law school within a certain period of time, a third of it got forgiven. That's how that it worked then. So I graduated really with $21,000 instead, just got forgiven because I finished. <laughs> and for someone who graduates with a quarter of a million dollars in private debt, for example, they're not sympathetic to my like, oh yeah, I have the 21,000. And then, you know, taking it back to tax actually, um, if you, um, so if you're like a middle-class person, for example, my partner still has student loans from her time at Yale, then undergrad, then law school. And now we're in our fifties. She still has student loans. Still, we still owe a lot. Um, and that amount is not, we make just a little bit too much money for us to deduct the student loan payments um, including the interest payments. So it's after-tax dollars and it's a lot, like it's a lot of after-tax dollars for many, many, many years that we're continuing to pay down her student loan debt. So I was wondering, um, that, uh, that loan um, would be from a US-based lender, I assume. Uh, now you're in Canada, like, so, so how does that work? If, if, if you're living in Canada, if you're making your income in Canada, but I mean, you have this loan that you're paying off from a U.S.-based lender, how, how do the tax laws kind of work on that? Like, you're deducting it against your Canadian income or what's that going on there? Yeah, yeah. If, 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 so if you're a resident of Canada, you're paying tax on your, um, your worldwide income because <laughs> uh, you both still make money in the United States as well. And, um, and you, when you get to the part where you're deducting expenses related to education, then there's a calculation in Canada and it will or will not be deductible. I don't know yet actually, because this is our first year as a full resident in the United States. And I haven't done my taxes for 2020 yet, but I could come back and do a <laughs> podcast once I've done it. And I know the answer to the student loan debt. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd always be happy to have you back. <laughs> 
we could discuss a specifically student loan uh, podcast. Maybe we'll we'll switch focus a bit and, and come back a little bit more to Canada. Um, I'm actually Métis, so an area I'm kind of interested in is Indigenous tax law, um, because it, for Métis, any we don't get any sort of tax break as far as I know or that I've ever seen. Um, and when I used to work in retail or things like that, I would have other Indigenous members coming and saying, well, can you, I get a tax break on this if you send it out to the reserve and all these things. So how does Indigenous tax law work in Canada? Mm. I know it's a massive question and feel free to break that down into wherever, wherever you think is the best way to do it. Yeah. So it's, it is a massive question. So let's, we'll start at the sort of the super highest level. So because the way that it has evolved, it's evolved within the federal rubric rather than as it's as a separate government um, under the constitution act. Right. So the section 91 of the constitution act says that the federal government has these broad taxing powers, really they can tax anything in, in any way. And then the section 92 of the constitution act says that provincial governments are more limited, right? They can, um, they can directly tax provincial residents for provincial um, services. The things that the provincial government is permitted to do under the constitution act, it can raise taxes for, and then the municipal governments actually derive their authority from the provincial government. So that's how that happens. And as you would know, First Nations and Indigenous and Métis governments um, are not are nowhere to be found in that ta- division of taxing authority in the federal system that we now call Canada. All right. And historically, um, so and let's bracket the Métis question because as you just correctly noted, um, they're, they're doubly disadvantaged in this system because they ha- have not at least previously been recognized as an Indigenous nation capable of self-government because they didn't fall under the Indian Act. So let's bracket the Métis question. Okay. For a okay. <laughs> um, and then, so historically, of course, the colonial government understood Indigenous uh, folks as either something um, to be eradicated or cared for, but not something that you would um, regard as a nation to nation kind of relationship worthy of that kind of recognition. Um, And over time that is evolving and more or less quickly depending on your point of view, but it was not very long ago that indigenous governments were actually um, precluded from taxing. So they were not allowed to tax by virtue of the Indian Act and other acts of parliament. So they were prohibited from taxing. And then the government went even further because um, First Nations historical and cultural practices that looked like redistribution like potlatches, for example, were also prohibited. So governments were not allowed to do or practice traditional redistribution practices. And then they were also not allowed to tax in the way that we understand modern governments to be allowed to do. And then that changed and it only changed for, and I'm just using the word Indian because the Indian Act uses the word Indian and not because that's the right word. No, but, no, definitely. Okay, but status Indians, it started to change for status Indians, which had its um, has all kinds of problems, as you could imagine, because it excludes many Indigenous people, Métis people, Aboriginal people, all excluded from, and and also, it also excludes previously status Indians who lost their status for some reason related usually to gender or, um, you know, marrying off the reserve and so on. Okay, so all of that is changing. And then you have in the late 20th century by 1983, I think, the ability for um, governments, indigenous governments, not Métis, but other indigenous governments on, on reserves to um, develop property tax systems. So, and that's under the Indian Act. That's why it doesn't, it's not applying broadly. But under the Indian Act, you have the ability under section 83 to develop what looks like a property law tax system that looks like provincial and municipal 
property tax systems. That's why I said at the beginning, though, um, they're not in the constitution in the way that other, the provincial government and therefore by delegation, the municipal governments, they, that comes as sort of an act of parliament from the federal government from the federal government. It's not constitutional, right? They could change it. They, they put it in the Indian Act. They could take it out of the Indian Act. It's not, not constitutional in that sense. Um, and there was a bunch of problems with that, not just because certain indigenous governments are excluded, um, but also because um, people didn't, it's, it's complex. Um, it requires an underlying um, financial management system, the ability to borrow money, bylaws, you know, it, it requires sort of a functioning governmental structure in order to implement that effectively. So what, um, what evolved was um, both the knowledge that we needed to change it, <laughs> but also uh, the identification of those gaps that, that you needed um, support for, developing systems that would be enable you to have an effective tax system. So you end up with in 2005, the financial management, First Nations Financial Fiscal Management Act, which broadens the taxing authority of First Nations governments. Um, so it's no longer as restricted as section 83 of the Indian Act um, and establishes other, um, they're not, they're meant to be independent of the crown. So they're not government institutions, but they are, um, they are institutions. It, it sets up um, the First Nations Financial Management Board, the First Nations Tax Commission, which is a sits in Kamloops, <laughs> very near to Thompson Rivers University, um, the First Nations Finance Authority. Um, so these are all meant to be independent of the government um, and they, are supposed to operate independently of the government. They operate more like nonprofits. They have boards of directors and so on. And they are really at the highest level capacity building um, institutions meant to increase the possibility and functioning of indigenous First Nations government tax systems, tax authority, so that they can tax broadly on territory or reserve for um, for in mostly with respect to property taxes. So that's, that's on the side of the self-governing nation's ability to be taxing authorities, like to be governments, right? Um, and even then there's lots of critiques that it's still insufficiently, um, insufficiently re um, recognizing the government functions of a First Nations government, because for example, there's no constitutional authority to income tax, right? But but that's this is evolving super quickly, and that's to Jordan's point earlier about um, this is such a great area of law. Like I couldn't be more ex encouraging of students who wanted to be who are interested in tax and interested in, in indigenous legal issues um, to if they wanted to be involved in this because it's it's. It's an opt-in system. So under the Financial Fiscal Management Act, it's an opt-in system. So it's not all First Nations that are automatically part of the system that enables them to impose tax. They have to opt in and they have to satisfy certain criteria. They have to develop the legal and financial infrastructures to be a taxing government and so on. And that's lots of work to be done. And very, as a percentage of First Nations governments, it's, it's nowhere near, not even near half. It's a small percentage of governments have opted in and are, but people want to, it's partly education. People need to know this is there and then need to understand how to, how to satisfy the standards and requirements of the acts and so on. There's also a goods and services tax act, a first nations goods and services tax act also can it's opt in and indigenous governments can um, impose a, a GST equivalent on reserve um, and not pay the federal GST. So it's instead of the federal GST. Um, and, but again, it's, it's about setting the government up, the First Nations government up to be able to do that, right? Then you have the, what you were mentioning, which is the taxation of individuals. 
<laughs> the person who's like, hey, can I, is this exempt for me or, or do I? Mm-hmm. Right. That may be because they, they are saying to you, oh, hey, Tanner, I don't want to pay GST. I right. want to pay that goods and services tax to my government, which is a, so it's not saying I don't want to pay goods and services tax. It's right. that I don't, I want it to go to my government, not to the federal government. Although I think um, it perpetuates this idea that indigenous people don't want to pay tax as opposed to don't want to pay tax to the colonial government and would, would want to pay tax to their government, which is a different question, isn't it? Right. So that could be part of it. And then the other big, um, so there's the goods and services tax, but the other sort of big issue in this context is income tax. And under the Indian Act, there is an exemption for certain kinds of personal property on reserve, which has been interpreted to include income on the reserve. And it's a, it's a, uh, it's a super complex area of law, but just as a very general matter, it's meant to exempt certain kinds of income and other property, personal property taxes on reserve. Mm. Um, so, uh, but there's a body of law about whether or not this is happening on reserve. Um, if it's, if I, if I live on the reserve and I work off the reserve, if I use right. the reserve, but I'm working on the reserve right now because of COVID as I'm at home, mm-hmm. um, those kinds, there's a very complex area of law, but the sort of, um, who gets taxed and where that money goes remains um, a live question. So on the point of where that money goes, I was interested. So um, I, like if I live in BC or Alberta, I pay, I pay tax to the government and the government spends that money on infrastructure, healthcare, whatnot. Um, I was wondering, does that money go towards the, towards the, towards the, 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 the reserves, the indigenous groups, or or is that money paid in Alberta stays kind of within the infrastructure within the infrastructure in Alberta, and then the the, the treaty lands they they kind of build their own infrastructure, if that makes sense. So here's what I don't. I'm not. So I think so. Here's what I think you're asking. So the the there are what you're talking about now is implicating transfers. So there are direct taxes paid. So if I live on the reserve and I pay a goods and service tax to the reserve, to to the local government, then that money stays with that government and it's a goods and services tax and it's meant to be a revenue source for the government for it to then spend on public services um, for that band, not for anybody else. But you, there are very, even if I live on reserve, if I live in Alberta and I live on reserve, there's actually still very few taxes that are paid directly to the band council or to the First Nation government. Um, mostly you're going to pay, even if you were a member of that band, Jordan, you'd pay your pr- provincial tax to the Alberta government and your federal tax to Canada. Then depending on the services that that band provides you, um, there will be a transfer system between a transfer payment between the governments to the band for certain pre- services that are provided on the band on the reserve instead of being provided by like if you're probably just going to go to the hospital in Alberta so unlikely they're giving a transfer for that kind of health service unless the hospital's actually on the reserve. Um, but there could be a transfer of dollars for other kinds of healthcare that's local to where you, depending on how big your, your reserve is, that transfer um, system is even more complex than the current tax system, which I just described, and is evolving really quickly be, as in partnership with the evolution of those taxes is the evolution of um, the clarification around service provision. Which, which government should provide the service? The indigenous government, the provincial government, or the federal government? And then which government should pay for the service? And then how do you measure outcomes and ensure a minimum standard of living? So that's evolving now quite quickly. Transfers used to be thought of in the earlier model that I mentioned, which is how nice of us to give you money. And now it's try- that people are seeking to have it reconceived as a government to government transfer in the way that the federal and provincial governments transfer money. And that's like, that's evolving as you and I are talking right now, actually. 
And I was wondering why, so Canadian government and reflecting, I mean, reflecting the people they represent, um, like we're moving more towards letting the local governments on the reserve, I mean, not just like enabling them to, to, to control their own taxes more than they were, which is hardly any. Why do you think we're kind of moving towards that for, for a policy reasons, kind of moving the tax more within the reserve instead of let's just transfer, let's just uh, transfer, do this transfer system? Why do you think we're moving that way? I think because it comes back to fundamentals with respect to governments. So we understand governments to have certain inherent powers as like qua governments. We think of governments as um, having the ability to raise revenue and determine how that revenue is spent for the benefit of its public. And I think as we move, however slowly, to understanding that the relationship between the federal government and the indigenous governments is a government to government relationship, not a government to citizen relationship like me living in Vancouver. I'm not, Vancouver is not a self-government. It's not self-governing in that nation to nation way. And I'm perfectly content to be a citizen of Canada. But if it's government to government, then I think the tax system is both following in that sort of commitment, but also um, it, it almost has to be a mover. If you don't change the way we tax, you'll never move to a meaningful self-government structure because it's just, it's implicit in what it means to be a government is to be able to tax. Yeah. I, I mean, it, I, so like I said before, I didn't know much about tax and just kind of in this conversation, I've learned already so much more about it. And it, it strikes me as kind of this core fundamental reason on how things get done uh, my immediate thought is kind of the the clean water that some reserves are facing. And I, I could see why tax would actually be a really important issue there, because the federal government may not know if they're receiving money for that clean water. Like, for example, I obviously pay for my water out of my uh, property tax. But on these reserves, they wouldn't necessarily be paying for that. But they might not also have the systems in place on their own reserve yet uh, to have a tax structure to pay for this water so uh, that that to me is just fa fascinating and it's not really a question it's more of just an observation of how tied tax is into simple things like getting clean water to reserves and blows my mind <laughs> well it's so interesting you should say that because that is what you've just said is really encapsulates one of the most important discussions people are having right now around taxation and transfers because you're right that at the local level, right, your property tax pays, for example, for we think about property tax as I think about property tax as all of the services I'm getting at the local level, <clears throat> my recycling, my composting, my clean water in the Vancouver, my local elementary school, and so on. Um, and if on a reserve, all they're historically dependent on a transfer of money from the federal government, and the federal government doesn't ordinarily involve itself in those kinds of services, local services, caring if you have actually a garbage truck that's burning clean fuel. The federal government, I mean, the federal government probably cares, but it's not involved in making that happen in the way that a local government is actually best situated to make that happen. You couldn't the federal government couldn't be, that would be so cumbersome for them to be worried about whether or not <laughs> you have a really clean fuel burning garbage truck yeah. on the reserve. Um, and that that's a gap that people didn't understand in the way that you just said it actually till more recently. And then um, now, you know, because the people are looking for reasons why the minimum standard on li of living on many reserves is not equal to the minimum standard of living that we believe we are committed to in Canada. Um, and now is as part of the reconciliation process, this really is changing rapidly since the reconciliation process for better or for worse. I mean, people have critiques of that the process and the calls to action, but it, but it is producing these changes to commitments to changes. Um, one of which is to better understand how tax transfers and self-government work together, the complexity of how those work together to ensure 
minimum clean water. Like there's no Canadian, as we call them Canadians now, but anyone living on the territory we now call Canada, people are surprised to learn that pe- there are whole communities that don't have potable water. Like the average yeah. Canadian was surprised to learn that, right? Because mm-hmm. Well, it's just not something you expect nowadays. Uh, I mean, we're in 2021. You're saying there's areas in Canada they can't turn on their tap and have a drink of water? Like, it blows your mind that we can be in this day and age where we're having this discussion on Zoom in different areas of the country, yet we still can't get clean water to some people. And yeah, I, I mean, I think it'd be great if in high school we had to take a basic task course or something just to understand these interplays because on paper it seems so easy. Just step A, get them clean water. Done. But it <laughs> it, it really is not that easy. And I, I, I just think it's fascinating. It's, a, it's an important discussion too, because I mean so many people are ignorant to a lot of these things. I mean, including myself. I mean, yeah, I have I have no idea, but like everybody in Canada has clean water. Um, and then even like the, the, the indigenous, uh, the tax system completely ignorant to it before really had no idea the complexities of it and just had certain preconceived notions as I mean, why, why does this group have tax exemptions? Whereas I don't. And I mean, it's a completely more complex issue that a lot of people don't know about. So, um, it's important that we, I think, have the discussion and appreciate you, uh, uh outlining it a bit for us. Um, well, just can I follow up quickly? I know you guys are cutting me off. No, 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 <laughs> we wouldn't do that. But we do set a timer for ourselves because, like you said, Jordan and I will talk forever. It's, so it's more than respect for your time because yeah. <laughs> we, can, we, we can go three hours. Um, you know, I'm a teacher, as you know, because I'm, I'm your teacher, Jordan. Um, but yes. um, because I actually believe to my core, my, it's one of my fundamental commitments and beliefs is that education is transformative. And one of the ways in which it's transformative is dispelling myths. Like um, the more you understand your world, the more you're dealing with facts, then the better you can prepare yourself for the world and the better you are situated to help other people in the world. And I believe that. So I do think you're right that that this kind of education at its very simplest level should happen in grade 10 or 11 or 12 so that people don't graduate believing that the people who don't have potable water or you know, can't turn on their taps is their fault. That is to say the federal government has been supporting them forever and um, they misspent their money and, or, or first of all, they don't know there's no clean water, but when they learn it, the tendency then is to blame the communities that themselves haven't solved that, that yet. Um, same with the, you know, Jordan mentioned the, the exemptions with respect to income tax. So if you you don't pay income tax on a reserve to the federal government for income earned on the reserve, that's very few people actually. um, And it's very complex. But if you had a basic tax course, you would understand that actually all people who live in what we now call Canada have access to exemptions. And um, having an exemption is just one way that the government is actually spending money. It's actually provided, it, it could either tax it and then provide a social service or can leave money in the hands of the taxpayer. That's one way the government actually um, spends money is to just not take it. And it does that from all, all kinds of people based on their status or based on their practice. So, you know, as a parent, for example, if your status is as a parent, you have certain exemptions, credits, deductions. If your status is an Indian, again, I use the word because the act does not because I do, um, you have certain exemptions. But if you could locate that in a very broad discussion in grade 11 um, uh, about, about that and just people, again, if they just graduated and hit, community college or university or um, whatever it is they do after grade 12 with that basic understanding as a voter and a human being, that would be really helpful. And I think it would actually change lives for people who report to me who have been victims of this racism or discrimination. It would change their life to be a child in grade 12 who everybody is not looking at, believing that it's either their community's fault they don't have water or their parents don't really pay tax. So we, you know, we don't have to care about them or they shouldn't be allowed to vote or whatever it is that their myth or the racism, however it's being expressed, 
I do believe, I believe in the power of education to at least start to change that. Most definitely. And I mean, even on the most basic level, if I had a grade 10 tax course, maybe I wouldn't trust that number that gives me that TurboTax gives me every year. (laughs) Instead, we learn about uh, the the mitochondria is the powerhouse. (laughs) Yeah, I'll never forget the mitochondria powerhouse of the cell. (laughs) Well, you know, Jordan, that I mean, Tanner, circling back to your trust of TurboTax. Be careful what you say, because I use TurboTax a lot, too. <laughs> <laughs> Me, too. Okay. okay we're good. I, I mean, come on. You probably question unless, the number more than we do, though. We're just like, oh, unless 500 bucks back? That's good. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, you could get 750. No. Um, <laughs> all I was going to say, you know, this actually ties into Jordan's comment as well. I mean, I don't do... I, us, we are not in a position to be requiring a lot of tax planning in our lives. We probably could benefit from it, but it's very expensive in relation to how much money we would save. And um, so we also use two tax. But what I will say, and this is if you took tax in law school, not just in grade 10, you would learn that um, the tax act, like all acts, the income tax act is subject to interpretation. Yeah. And people are have um, a greater or lesser uh, comfort with risk, right? So some taxpayers are willing to be more aggressive with their interpretation of a tax act provision than others. They feel fine and then they're willing to take the chance that the CRA will dispute their interpretation of that section. And then they're in the process of assessment. They find themselves in the tax court of Canada and so on. And they're willing to do that um, they're willing to do that. So that's their comfort level with risk. And then some people like my tiny white grandma, that's her name. She was not comfortable with any kind of risk. So if the tax act could be interpreted in any way to take more money from you, then she would probably pay that amount because that would be how she would interpret it. Okay, so now back to TurboTax. As you can imagine, TurboTax is not an aggressive tax planner. So if a tax act section is capable of a more less or more conservative interpretation i mean small c conservative interpretation not a political ideology um the tax programs are taking the established most conservative approach and erring on the side of you paying tax that's all i would say so and I, you, just like you, I trust TurboTax and use it. And I don't, I'm not paid by them to say that. But um, I could imagine a world in which you might want to take a different, you might take a different interpretation of a particular section as it impacts you if your accountant suggested you should. Right. If your accountant is TurboTax, you're not going to. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Like as a student, even, you just, it's so it's so interesting and just the concept of tax. Like you just think of penny saved as a penny earned. It's just like I think so many people are missing out, including myself, are missing out on so much money from credits and exemptions and whatnot. And I mean, <laughs> for me, even if I don't practice in tax law, honestly, half the reason I took um, basic tax is so I could learn a thing or do about it. So I mean, when I'm actually in practice working, I'm not a <laughs> Like, is this a good thing to know, you know? And they're, they're really, it's a great how we don't thing get taught that in high school is ridiculous. It's a great thing to know. I told you what it, Tanner, I because we're not in person, I invite my class to send me emails to invite in uh, introduce themselves to me. Oh, okay. Um, and I love it. So I got like a bunch of emails. People send me photos, it's awesome. Um, and a not insignificant number of my tax class, which is like 50 people, are taking it so that they can do their own taxes. <laughs> I think is great. That's great. We should know how to do these things for ourselves. And you should also understand tax policy when you're voting. And so that when you're being a citizen, you are voting with knowledge and not with your just, you know, fake news or whatever. You should really understand how it works because it's of a piece. You pull out one piece of what you know from the clean water. You pull out one piece and a whole bunch of things flow from that. And understanding that complexity, I think, is important for you as a voter, as a taxpayer, 
But as a lawyer as well, Jordan, I do want you to be able to recognize a tax issue when you're practicing. (laughs) (laughs) I I think this discussion has definitely sold me on taking tax law. I never thought I would want to, but uh, I think think I'll put it on the docket for next year. My cast was secretly meant to get Tanner to take tax law. <laughs> we could have talked to Tanner just on our own, Jordan. We would yeah, have he wouldn't have showed up. He wouldn't have showed up. This is the only way to get him. This is the only way to get him on a call. <laughs> well, I I think that's a good segue um, to kind of wrapping it up. We'll we'll just leave it with the final question. And why do you think law students should try and practice tax law? I know we kind of discussed it, but if you could wrap it up into one final sentence to leave some of our listeners with. Okay, tax law A is really fun. (laughs) If you're a person who enjoys problem solving, like complex problem solving, it's fun. It's super satisfying, like doing the dishes. Like there's a beginning and an end. You get to, you approach a problem, you plan for it, you implement it, and then you go home and then you've done it. And that's a really great feeling. Um, But then also, if you are a person who's really interested in the complexity of how society works tax law will teach you more about the canadian social political and economic systems i think than almost any other area of law it's a it's a framework structure that underlies everything we do from the taxation of damages for compensatory you know compensatory damages in the tort system to taxes on reserve um, there's no part of your life that the tax law is not right there. You just don't always see it. Well, there you go, everybody. Tax law, it's not just numbers and math. It's fundamental to how we run our society. You're going to have to double the amount of students you take in your tax law next year because uh, yeah. everybody, you're going to have a wait list through the door after everybody listens to this. You're going to have a wait list of like 100 Wait, I didn't even talk to you about how much I love contract law, which is even more than I love tax law. Well, that's mandatory. That's that's mandatory. <laughs> okay. Tax law should be mandatory too. Yeah, we could do a whole other podcast on contract law. <laughs> well, Laura, I wanted to thank you so much uh, for doing this. This was a really interesting discussion. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and, and thank you again for taking some time to, to be here today with us. Thanks for letting me do this. This was fun. I'm stuck at home as, as you are. And so this was a super fun way to spend my morning.